Hello, everybody. How are you? Hope all is well. Welcome to another episode of Shot of Philosophy. And today's short conversation will be once again with Marcus Aurelius and his meditations. And for some reason, I've, I was thinking about this, I've been avoiding book one. So I want to start right in book one, even before the first meditation, right? So before the first meditation, the title of this book, I think is interesting. It's Debts and Lessons. So I think lessons, that's kind of an obvious point, right? He is writing down in this book um, kind of reflections on the major people in his life who shaped him and what lessons he learned from them. And then I think adding the word debt actually makes this even more powerful, right? And I think we have a very negative conception of debt because when the, you know when we say debt in our culture right now, everyone, of course, thinks of money first, which is fair, right? Because that's a popular thing and it's important and we should, you know, Try to obviously not be in debt. We could even argue about, you know, what is debt? Why debt? Not for right now, though. Um, but that's a very interesting conversation. Uh, that being said, I think what he's employing here is kind of like a philosophical idea of debt, right? And I think that's really powerful. And I think that also can be very positive, right? I think to an extent, we could even think of the word debt as the word obligation, right? Our obligations, I think, are really important. And I think, you know, the Stoics would be really in agreement with that. Marcus, you know, included in that conversation, right? Your obligations in life should drive you forward. Your obligations in life can be things that you're grateful for, right? Your obligations in life, if you take care of them, will have a large part in making you who you are, right? So we all have obligations. And I think, you know, as he does in this chapter, he's talking about some people who have passed away, others who are still alive. Just take a minute because, I, you know, to like sit with this idea, right? Who has taught you your greatest lessons. What were those lessons? Why were they so important? And write the person's name. And then as Marcus does in this section, and I'll give some examples in a minute, write a couple lines on what this lesson was, how it was meaningful, right? And let's think for a moment too about our, our obligations and our debts. And I mean, we could even think of debt as like indebtedness, right? So for me, I think I have a debt to my family in, in a very major and generally incredibly inspiring way. Right. I'm, I'm very familiar with my family narrative. I'm fortunate enough to have written a book about um, my really my whole family, but specifically my uh, my papu or my grandfather, um, you know, who came to America after having gone through World War II and being captured by Nazis and escaping and then fighting in the Greek Civil War to, you know, really to rescue his father who was in prison and they were going to you know send him into exile. So we joined one side of the conflict basically just to protect him came to America, you know, worked incredibly hard. So for me, you know, among a lot of other stories in my family, I have a debt to these people to try my best. I have a debt to these people to treat others justly. I have a debt to these people to try to be good at what I do and do the best at, you know, to do my best, to be the best at what I do because they sacrifice so much and that motivates the hell out of me, right? So I think for Marcus, he writes these meditations down to motivate himself, to inspire himself through these reminders. Right. So, I mean, for me, I also think I'm not, I'm not really into photos. Like I'm not the type of guy to like, Hey, let's, I never suggest taking a photo of myself. I'm never like, Hey, let's stop what we're doing at dinner. And I'm, I'm not trying to mock this. It's, I am just cause I don't like it. It's a defense mechanism. I understand, you know, it's normal. Like let's capture the moment. Cool. I'm sorry. I can't not say this in a weird tone of voice. Cause I just, it makes me uncomfortable. I, I maybe I, I just don't like photos being taken to me, whatever. Anyway, um, but I think one of the things I do enjoy about photos, and I'm not in these really, although sometimes I am, they can serve as reminders of this 
indebtedness that can be powerful, right? So for me, I use this in my daily life. I have a photo, among others, of my papu, the person I just described, right by my desk, right? And I look at it pretty much every day. It's, it's right on top of a bookcase. I have one of my notebooks on top of the bookcase that I use frequently. And I always look at that picture and it brings back fond memories, but also it inspires me. It pushes, it pulls and pushes me forward. I'm, I'm, I'm like messing my words up today. Give me a second. A little more coffee. All right. Um, but the photo serves as a reminder, right? And he's unfortunately passed away. And that photo, you know, because we can't sit and talk, it, it really is kind of like a nice dialogue that I have with myself and my thoughts of him and that sense of, let's call it positive debt. I owe it to him to, again, like embody the virtues I mentioned, and I owe it to him to try to work hard and be creative in positive ways. So let's see what Marcus has to say here. And again, I really do suggest that you sit with this as an exercise, right? What are your obligations? What are your positive senses of debt? Maybe it's to a parent or to a friend or to a grandparent or what have you, right? But these things are powerful. Then how could we represent that in our daily lives? Maybe it is a journaling practice where we go back and reread. Maybe it is having some different photos around the house. And not even just photos, but like other items too. Like for example, in my apartment, right by my coffee situation. And by, by situation, I have multiple scenarios. I have like a, a frappe maker. I have a Keurig. I've got cold brew, like a cold brew thing. I mean, I'm really extensive right now in terms of just options. So by that area, I have this really cool, right? I think it's cool. Um, it's a vase from my papu's house and it's got like all these ancient Greek images on it and it's from Greece. So when I look at that too, it's like it prepared me for the day. Strangely, and this is kind of a Greek mythological point um, in terms of being prepared, one of the images on the vase is Achilles like sharpening a spear. So it's like back to, I think a few episodes ago, I mentioned this, like why do, why voluntarily um, try to do difficult things every day, right? It's kind of like, you know, that Roman saying or that Latin saying, if you want peace, prepare for war. So that is sort of a cool little connection to that visually on the vase, right? So it's like just always training yourself, always being ready and looking at that again as a positive thing, right? So the coffee also, of course, gets you going for the day, right? That's very important too, like having some type of routine in the morning, to help you wake up. Maybe it's not coffee per se, right? But I look at that vase, I make my coffee and it gets me in this state of like positivity and, and wanting to challenge myself and grow and prepare for the day, right? In a literal and also more philosophical sense. And again, it comes from his house. So I'm reminded of someone who inspired me in that regard as well. Who also on the other end of that spectrum famously would encourage me to also relax. But for me, I'm relaxed when I'm preparing. So that's just, you know, it's different approaches there maybe. Anyway, let's get to Marcus finally, right? So I'm going to read three of these sections, or maybe three or four, because some of them are short. But of course, each will start off with the name of the person and um, what he learned from them, right? So the first one he starts off with is my grandfather Varus, right? Which again, for me is interesting because I'm talking about my grandfather so much in this episode. And from him, he learned character and self-control. Think about how important those things are. Right. And character, that's a little bit ambiguous. Like, what does he mean by that? Maybe he meant the importance of developing character. Maybe he meant his grandfather had a great character and he would sort of emulate just various aspects of his grandfather's character. Um, or maybe even like, you know, what does it mean to have character? Like, it's not just to speak, I'm honest, but it's also about telling the truth when it might be difficult. Right. So a lot of different potential interpretations there. It's a little bit ambiguous, but self-control less so, right? I think self-control is one of the most important traits we can have. 
right? Everything, and this is a really cool part of um, Socrates, who of course Marcus would have been very familiar with, and also, I, I mean, I would argue impacted Epictetus, who I said already, right? Really strongly impacted Marcus. Um, nothing is good without a good soul. And I think I mentioned this already a little bit, right? In a, in a previous episode. If you are not a good person, no, you'll, you, no amount of money will make you a good person. You'll use that money in, in negative ways that lack virtue, that are unjust, that are untruthful. You have to get your soul right. And I think a huge part of how Socrates would want us to understand this idea of self-control is that yourself is your soul. That's what self is. Self is not your money. Self is not even necessarily your body, right? Obviously it is, but the, the real self is the soul. That's the most important thing because once again, let's say this is a great idea from uh, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu coach who's like world famous and he, uh, he also has a philosophy, I think PhD from Columbia University. He was saying that you know Brazilian jiu-jitsu, of course, gives you physical and mental power, right? Um, and so when I asked him like, what does jiu-jitsu do? He goes, it doesn't really give you power, right? He challenges, he's like, it reveals Oh, I'm sorry, it doesn't shape you, it reveals you. So if if you're you come in day one and you get really good at jujitsu, right? And you become a black belt, you're good at jujitsu, but you could use that to do bad things because now you have this greater physical capacity. So it reveals the person. If you come into Brazilian jiu-jitsu and you're kind and you're confident right? You'll stay kind and confident. It'll make you even kinder, even more confident. But if you come in and you're a mean person, you're an arrogant person, it'll only reveal that and increase it even more, right? So that's really cool because jujitsu on the surface looks like a physical activity when in actuality it is profoundly intellectual. And also, as we just saw, with the guy's name is John Danaher. John Danaher's description, it's also profoundly spiritual because those are virtues, right? Confidence exists in your soul, Kindness exists in your soul. Arrogance exists in your soul, right? So these things, one, I think it's cool to think about how they connect. But when he's saying self-control, especially as a Stoic, he's thinking about, I think, virtue. He's thinking about what are your intentions, right? He's thinking about that old epic, you know, from Epictetus, that really important number one of the Enchiridion, right? Do you know what you can and cannot control? Are you working on controlling yourself, your thoughts, your emotions, your actions, are you exercising the capacity to at least attend to that idea? Because, of course, this is you know pre-modern psychology. So we could argue to what degree, if at all, we can control any of those things. But that's maybe not even the most important question. The most important question might be, is it a worthwhile pursuit? In pursuing that type of control, would we become better people? Would something else maybe even come of it that could be valuable? And no one really makes that point, right? I've never heard someone really make that point extensively where it's like, okay, we don't have any, we, we can't control any of those things. Our thoughts, our, our feelings, our actions. Maybe, because I, I enjoy this argument, right? Maybe we have zero control over any of that. Well, is trying still meaningful? Could trying still bear fruit in some way? Could learning even simply to pay attention to ourselves, just that experience, thinking about our, our actions, thinking about our feelings, thinking about our thoughts, our perceptions of the world, the way we judge things, even if they remain, quote, the same, which I don't, I would argue they can't because we're constantly changing everybody, right? Um, is just learning to pay attention valuable? So I'm sorry if I, I might mispronounce her, her name, but I've, I've really been learning a lot from Simone. I'm not sure if it's pronounced whale or veil, but it's W-E-I-L. She's an absolutely brilliant philosopher. I've been studying her for my dissertation and one of her obsessions, and I learned it 
uh, learned about her. Then I did some extra reading of her own work in this great book I'd recommend. I'm still uh, working through it. I haven't finished it yet called the, uh, the Socrates Express by Eric Weiner. It's a very cool book. And he talks about how we should pay attention the way Simone Vale or Whale suggests we do. And she's obsessed with the idea that paying attention in and of itself, truly paying attention, has value. Right? So, and she mentioned school a lot. So it's like even if you – and I, this, I would fall into this category. If you were terrible at math and you never got, let's say, quote, the right answer, learning how to pay attention to the problem before the problem, before the numbers on the page, there's the attention. That attention is valuable. Right. And I think in, in, you know, in our modern world where we're increasingly distracted, our thoughts are increasingly scattered, we need to have this conversation. Or let's even say we need to have the conversation behind the conversation. And by the way, I would not agree with the idea that we have zero control over our thoughts, feelings, and actions. I would not agree with that. But there's an interesting argument to be made. So he here in this brief meditation, he's thanking his grandfather for really the power of at least, let's say, for argument's sake, pursuing self-control. And we could say maybe his grandfather, in his eyes, demonstrated this in a really good way. My grandfather on my mother's side is also someone who I think I would say uh, demonstrated self-control in a very powerful way. He was totally blind. He went blind when he was 50. And I always return to these stories, right? And again, it's even as I think about my teaching, I've told the story so many times. And returning to it is valuable, right? Because again, that reminder is powerful, especially for the Stoics, right? The daily reminder of certain things. So he was totally blind. He went blind when he was 50. He had a very active life before that. And, you know, he had certain habits. So when I knew him, he was blind the whole time, right? Um, he had certain habits that in life he could just kind of turn on and off, you know? Um, for example, he, ha he would often have to adjust his diet for health reasons and he could just switch into it. Like the second the doctor said, stop. And I was at their house almost every day, some, sometimes some periods of my life as a child. Right. And I just see him like he'd eat this one day and he'd stop the next day. He stopped. He quit smoking when, when he really learned that it was unhealthy. Right. Um, he had a very routine daily life. That even on days he didn't feel like it, he'd go and, and clean certain parts of the house. He would walk to certain parts of the neighborhood, right? So he had tremendous amounts of self-control in in the in the face of a disability that was very difficult to deal with. So tremendous self-control. So maybe for a moment too, situate yourself, right? Do you have a lot of self-control? How do you exhibit self-control? Where could you maybe again work to at least establish a greater degree of self-control? Right, and maybe think too. And this is this episode's already getting a little bit long. I might stop it with this uh, number one, actually. Um, but think for a moment, right? How could the exercise of greater self-control make your life better? So for me, my primary—I'm very—I would say at this point, I'm very good at controlling certain things. Um, whereas others, for example, like I—I I need to get better at controlling. Um, let me think. Because I do feel like recently, in all honesty, I've been pretty under control. I think there were times where controlling my thoughts have has proven to be very difficult. The idea of the flying thought or the flaught, I used to have to, um, I used to respond to those way more intensely. Whereas now I've learned to control my responses to those thoughts to be significantly calmer, kind of make room for them and not get angry at myself for having them. Right. So the thought of like, let's say, um, like a paranoia um, about not, uh, fulfilling my role as this new job is actually a good example of this. I've had to 
practices at a new job. I was nervous when I started it, right? It's a new job. It's also a new position at the place. So I'm like, I'm par- I was paranoid. Um, you know, like, are they really committed to the role? Like, you know, this and that, am I doing a good job? And I've learned to just greet those thoughts more calmly. And that's been a result, I think, of implementing self-control and examining my responses. And for me too, and again, who knows if I'm fooling myself again, it's possible. Although I don't agree with it. Um, I've seen myself become more controlled. I think other examples might be with what I eat. I'm very um, good at controlling um, what I really not even what I eat, but also what I buy because that's where it starts, right? I think if you want to lead a healthier lifestyle in terms of what you eat, that starts with not bringing stuff into your into your home, right? So it's like, don't I don't go food shopping when I'm hungry. That's one small example of self control, right? Um, but it's, you're not going to eat it if you don't buy it, right? And if you live in a home where other people buy the food, that's more difficult, but it's also another opportunity to practice self-control, right? So let's keep that in mind as well. We look at life perhaps as opportunities to practice some of these virtues. So again, maybe I'm presented with a situation at work where I got something wrong or what have you. I have to look at it as an opportunity to practice self-control. We all make mistakes, right? I don't have to respond to criticism with the sense or I don't have to, let's say I do respond to criticism with the idea of, oh shit, am I going to get fired? I don't have to let that thought become, I am going to get fired, right? I can stop myself. Oh, wait a minute. That's not really an evidence-backed thought. That's not really real. They didn't say anything about getting fired. They just said, do this differently, right? So I don't have to, and this is a big idea for the Stoics. We're not going to get into it too much now because I'm already running long here, but we don't have to give assent to things. We do not have to give assent to doxa. So doxa, there's a couple ways to translate it. My way of understanding it is um, generally it's poorly supported belief that we might accept as true. Or let's say it could even be poorly supported belief that is accepted as true, maybe generally in society or maybe with you, with yourself, right? It's a belief that you accept as true that you know you have bad evidence for or a lack of evidence. Then to give assent is to make something true or make something feel or seem true or to accept it as truth. So if you get in the habit of accepting doxa, that's a problem. If you're in the habit of not examining what you accept as true, that's a problem. And we can work on that by questioning ourselves, by questioning the world and looking kind of almost in a scientific way to collect evidence, not just accept things. That's a huge aspect of self-control, controlling our ability to accept things as true or reject them as false involves controlling ourselves such that we do research before we accept. Again, just one example of self-control. This is too long. Okay. Thank you for listening. Hope this is helpful. I'll talk to you soon.